This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm giving the mic over to Anna Marsh and Matt Perry, two producers on the show, for an interview with John Maida. Dr. John Maida is an American technologist and product experience leader who is known around the world for building bridges between business, engineering, and design, and his dedication to working inclusively. He is the SVP Chief Customer Experience Officer at Everbridge, where he works on the future of critical event management technologies for saving lives and keeping businesses and society running. He is an MIT-trained computer scientist who blends his training as a computer scientist with an MBA. He is the author of five books, including the new How to Speak Machine and the best-selling Laws of Simplicity. Among his many leadership positions, he serves on the board of directors at Sonos and the Smithsonian Design Museum. He is the former president and CEO of the Rhode Island School of Design, or RISD, and he is a partner at Kleiner Perkins Venture Capital in Silicon Valley. During his early career, Dr. Mehta was an MIT research professor in computational design, represented in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. He is also a recipient of the White House's National Design Award. He has appeared as a speaker all over the world, from Davos to Beijing to Sao Paulo to New York, and his TED Talks have received millions of views. They're dynamic, brilliant, and witty, and I highly recommend you check them out. To quote Wired Magazine, Meta is to design what Warren Buffett is to finance. Today's host, Anna Marsh and Matt Perry, are producers on the Technically Human podcast. Anna Marsh is a fourth-year computer science student at Cal Poly. She's graduating in the spring of 2021 and plans to start full-time at Microsoft in the fall. She has a deep interest in ethical technology cultivated through her coursework in computer science and the university's new Technically Human course, part of the Cal Poly Ethical Technology Initiative. Matt Perry is a fifth-year architecture student at Cal Poly. Now in the fifth year of his degree, he's doing research on ephemeral architecture and designing for the human experience while exploring what the future of architecture can be. He hopes to spend his time designing architecture with the human experience at the forefront of design. And now, let me turn it over to Anna and Matt with John Maida. So, John, when explaining your origin story or talking about how you started your career, you often explain this dynamic between your strengths in math versus your strengths in art. I share a similar experience where I took art classes for majority of my childhood, but I'm also very good at math, so many adults in my life encouraged me to pursue computer science. Today, I'm about three months away from graduating with an undergraduate degree in computer science, and similarly, you did the same with an undergraduate degree in computer science from MIT, but you still felt this connection to your creative side. I wonder if you'd be willing to share your personal experience with this balance between art and math. Well, first of all, I think math is taught incorrectly. So you come across it and either you think it's neat or you think it's ridiculous. I think art is the same way. It can be ridiculously taught, as you know, or it can be interesting. It may be how you encounter it when you're growing up that determines where you might land. It depends upon the family you grew up in. Your family 
may have been wealthy, not a care in the world. So they're not going to be pragmatic with you. They're going to say, do what you want to do, hun. It's going to be great. I want to be an artist. Fantastic. Go for it. But if you're in a more pragmatic household, over my dead body, you know, I don't want to support you for the rest of your life. Go do something. So that's that's a factor. But going back to math, the math we learn isn't relevant in the age of computation. The math we should learn is statistics, as we know, not calculus. So already that's flawed. The art we learn is based on a pre-digital way of thinking. Even the way the art is taught is wrong too. So I say to anyone at the stage in your career, thank goodness you learned computer science. <laughs> because how to speak machine is the foundation of the mess we're in right now. And if you can't speak machine, you're making up a lot of stuff. That's a lot of politicians, a lot of people out there who don't know CEOs, you just name it. Professors, they don't know how to speak machine. They're pretending really hard, but now you can tell if they know what they're talking about. It makes you dangerous in the way the younger generation should be able to be because you have to make the change required to make the what's world into yours. I was listening to your 2008 TED Talk titled My Journey in Design, and something you said stood out to me. You said that, although I am a technologist, I don't like technology very much. Now, while I take the joke, or at least what seems humorous, you follow the comment up with a statement that really sticks with me as a designer in this very technology-focused time. You said, the problem isn't how to make the world more technological, it's how to make it more humane again. Now, I look at this statement and wonder how things have changed since then, in your opinion, how do we begin to make tech more humane again? And what do you mean by again? When was tech humane? Well, the problem with video is you talk to someone that I don't know anymore. So I remember giving a talk there. And I don't remember what I said. I remember I confused a lot of people with whatever I said at the time. That wasn't intentional, but I was trying to understand MIT, really. And depending upon the institution you're in, it leans towards one way or like a few one ways. And I think if you're at a place like MIT, every solution, you know, like the hammer and the nail thing, there's a technological solution. I think at the time I was trying to rebel against the parent institution that housed me because I think that's what artists do is they can't be happy. So that was part of that. The second thing I think I was struggling with is understanding what it means to be human. I was in my maybe like early 30s, figuring stuff out. So a junior professor, things are going really well. When things are going really well, your personal life isn't going well because professional outweighs everything else. So it was just maybe my wife asking, how do I be more human? Maybe. What does that mean? Like just an hour ago, I was crying. That's a very human thing to do. It's like you wouldn't do it normally. Well, but that's why. Why is crying bad? It's a human thing. There's like these things in here that like generate water. <laughs> so is it a wrong thing? It happens. So I think human means using your body and mind together. People can cry at an Instagram post. People can cry at technology, cry seeing movies. I think those are good ways to use technology to make us feel something, become awake. I think far too often it sort of ends up dehumanizing us a bit with technology. It removes us from that human aspect. I don't know anymore. I'm not sure about that feeling. I remember I was in New York with... Jerry Laybourne, this total badass CEO, she made the Oxygen Network. I think she was the first like woman executive who built that entire company. And I don't know how I got to see her. 
but I was with her the one day and I was making some comment about technology that was negative. And she said to me, are you kidding? I love this stuff. I've got a Blackberry. I can like go to my kid's soccer game. I can be on the field with everybody else and responding to my emails. I couldn't have ever done this before. What are you talking about? It's a question of who has it is what stuck with me. And if the who is a narrow group of people that always have power, then it's, it's different than when those who usually don't get to have the power can access it. I think that's, that's where I, I kind of come back to. That was a long time ago, but I still remember it. I think it's because I began realizing the difference in privilege of gender at the time. It wasn't really obvious to me. And I began thinking about it. And when you start to live in these spaces where you can become more aware, it's hard to accept the new reality that you are ignoring. You're looking away from it because it's too hard to compute. When you look straight at it, you're like, huh, interesting. Hmm. How come I didn't notice that? Oh, because it's not, quote unquote, the normal thing you're used to thinking. So I've cherished those moments where my normality has been challenged. Even when it's been terrible, it's, it's powerful. As both Matt and I share passion for technology, I think we both strive to be creative in the work we do. But I think in the educational setting, it's really easy for this idea of the norm and kind of to separate these two concepts. As this podcast series has pointed out in previous episodes, educational settings sometimes separate the technological and the creative side, not only as concepts, but also in design, particularly in the way we organize physical space, presumably following the conceptual divide we create between tech and humanistic thinking. For example, most college campuses, the engineering building is physically separate from the arts and humanities building. In efforts to decrease the separation, you have promoted a movement away from STEM education to STEAM education. Can you explain a little bit about what STEAM education is and why do you think it struggles to catch on? I was just thinking about how, you know, I was president of a university, which means commencement. I love commencement. It's like a big party. I think in all remote, the beauty of commencement, the wedding feeling gets lost, this moment of happiness by a lot of people. But I remember I was at commencement during a negotiation year with my union, the faculty union. And there was a desire to send me a message. So on commencement stage, the son of the union head, who was a student, picked me up and body slammed me. This is like at commencement. And I remember the president of Brown went, ah, what happened? You know, because the tradition was to wear costumes to commencement. So it's like, oh, he's, he's dressed like a Mexican wrestler, you know, ah, exciting. And then the young man comes up to me, like picks me up and body slams me. And I'm lying there thinking, huh, what do I do? It's kind of like an Iron Man when like Iron Man gets taken out in the suit, he falls to earth and he's like all dark. So I'm thinking to myself, does my suit work? <laughs> you, know? you know, he's a big young man. He gets up and he does a cheer. Everyone thinks it's like planned. It was like a, a joke or something like this. And I'm like, huh, what should I do? Oh, body is functional. All systems go. I got back up and kept shaking hands of people. And that year, I won the negotiation quite easily <laughs> because that's not okay. Like that clearly not okay. So I was like, oh, I think that wasn't okay. So people ask you why I wasn't upset. And I remember thinking, well, he's like a kid. He doesn't know what he's doing. And his, his dad told him to do something and maybe he went too far and he just doesn't know. And I think this idea that 
education institutions this could happen is an example of how chaotic they really are if you push it to the edge. There's no HR training. There's no logic to how you move in an academic institution. You're smiling. So this is a real thing, right? Bad behavior is normal. And so it's kind of like, as a systems thinker, I'm thinking, this is logical for <laughs> this to occur. So then think about how each department is kind of an intellectual gang of sorts. And either you're in or you're not. Or are you across? And which one are you on? Are you on, wait, you're not one of us. Are you one of them? Or, oh, whoa, whoa, what meeting are you going to? And and it's tough because it, it it's lifelong membership. So if you make one mistake, they will slash your lunchbox two decades from now <laughs> because they're going to remember. So you have art taught the right way because that's the way it's been done. You have engineering taught the right way. You have history taught the right way. And that's just how it works. And then you're a student. You're like, wait, I, I kind of want to hang out with the Jets. I want to switch to that gang. And I'm like, hmm. I don't know. You're not performing well. I don't recommend that. You may not get a job. What does that mean? You're not going to help me get a job? <laughs> like, what am I going to think? So it plays on, so you have to come back home. Home is where we'll take care of you. So for faculty that can withstand that pressure and actually live across, it's challenging. For students, it's even worse because you really don't have a lot of choice. And it's a fairly good simulation of how the, the quote-unquote non-academic world works too. You're on a team. Are you on my team or that team? So I think it's a fair way of how the world is built. And I have found, like when I was working on STEM to STEAM, like a lot of that was just living in the art world, seeing how art education was marginalized, finding there was a need for advocacy. I'm a product maker, so I looked for product market fit. I tried five different versions of STEM to STEAM <laughs> before that one <laughs> caught on. I spent time in Washington, D.C., lobbied for it, had someone on my team who was passionate about it. Like all the things worked out. And so STEM to STEAM became a thing. But the moment I left that, you know, without like a an advocate putting like funding behind it, it just kind of vanished. But it comes back. Like I was at some gathering, some fancy gathering, and someone said, you know, my I must I'm a STEM to STEAM person. I said, Oh neat. What is that? And they he went on and described it to me. And I was like, huh, I'm so irrelevant to this. And I felt kind of happy <laughs> because you know what I mean? It's like you realize how temporary you really are. That you really don't matter. You might amplify something for a little bit, but once you let the pressure off, it's owned by the world. And that maybe that's a good thing, right? Yeah, I really find that powerful. And I guess you kind of touched on this a little bit, but since you worked as a professor and director of research at MIT and served as the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, I wonder what you've seen from the two extremes of singularly teaching STEM curriculum versus singularly teaching art and design curriculum. You touched on this a little bit, struggling at MIT and feeling kind of confined within those bounds. Do you see this approach as detrimental? What is the current model of singular teaching missing that maybe STEAM education could provide? Well, like when I left MIT, I stopped the professor world. I became someone who ran the institution. I didn't do any teaching, so I don't know much about actually having taught that space. I do know having watched the faculty teach art and design and getting involved to the extent that I could or should, I found it very similar. I found it similar in this act of making. I found it 
similar in the lack of understanding industry, business. And I think that for any person to be successful, they have to understand business. But academia is generally pretty bad at teaching business because it's a business, but it's not supposed to feel like a business. And in many senses, it disempowers the faculty to understand what's really going on. And it confuses students because they're paying money to learn <laughs> their customers. And meanwhile, to learn business, you have to be in the business world. So learning is a, a simulation. It's a privileged simulation of life to get to access. It's a wonderful thing to get to access. And it, it, in many cases, it can change your life. It changed my life. Like I'm this kid that grew up in Chinatown in Seattle. Parents had no education. I shouldn't have succeeded. By, by any measure, I should still be there. But education became that stepping stone ladder to something different. But I realized that I am an anomaly in America, which I find sad in hindsight. I found it very fascinating. You sort of said something about how education and learning is a bit of like a simulation of life. And I think that especially right now, that seems so fitting because we exist within this more technological environment now more than ever before. And I know for both Anna and I interviewing you today, and probably a large portion of the listeners to this podcast, we've been learning online more than ever. Now, while we probably wouldn't have chosen to go about learning in this way, I wonder, learning, looking back on this experience, if it has shown us something about the way we learn, what do you think remote learning and education in a virtual space offers? I know you have a Skillshare series, and I just wonder, what have you learned and what are you taking away from this experience? Like when you reached out, I was like, what? A professor's doing what? Making podcasts? What? <laughs> this kind of thing from a university? What's happening? That's dangerous. Nobody does that. And clearly, you've got all the production chops, so I'm impressed. It proves that learning doesn't have to happen in a university. And, and that is a scary thing for anyone who runs a business. I, I thought it was ironic that there was this one professor at RISD I loved. He was the English professor, Mike Fink, Professor Fink. Love that guy. The mysterious older, waspy, sort of Providence man. He's wearing shorts. And he's like the kind of person you don't want him to wear shorts. I'm like, Professor Fink, you know, he's like, everyone knows him. Like every student, every graduate I met, they're like, ah, oh, Professor. I'm like, oh, he's wearing shorts. That's so awkward. I remembered that when Jack Dorsey came out with the Square, Square device for mobile payments, I remember like, oh, I, I was at a conference and I said, hey, can I have a bunch of those? I want to give them away at commencement. So I think we were the largest site in America or in the world giving out squares. They were 3D printed at the time. And I remember how mad everybody was at me. Everyone was so mad at me. <laughs> it's like, John, what's he doing? Like, who needs this thing? Like, who would ever need uh, this device? He's that techie, you know? Ugh. So I got a lot of flack from that. I did it the second year, too. Same reaction. Ah, this techie guy. Nobody will need these things. You know, but the whole story behind Square is it was to sell art without needing cash. Third year, it's like people kind of grouse and whatever kind of thing. I was walking around campus, and there was this one professor who was... I was kind of upset at me, but I love to shop. So I say, hey, you know, we're going to have a jewelry metalsmithing sh show at Woods Gary. That's where the main gallery is. And she said, we have a pop-up shop because every time there's a pop-up shop, I would like shop. I love to shop. 
And she said to me, this year we're taking credit cards. And I said, oh, really? How are you doing that? And she said, we use this device called a Square. I said, what is that? And she says, well, it's a device to take mobile payments. I said, great. I'll see you there. I give this example because, number one, I think it's how change happens at scale. It's like you aren't attached to it. Therefore, the change gets accepted. But also in that era of the square, I was thinking, here I am in the, the fourth floor corner office of the main building. And I look outside the window and there's a little park. There's a park there with a bench. And I was telling myself, someday Professor Fink is going to sit at that bench with his square to take payments directly for his class. And wouldn't that be an interesting world is what I thought to myself. So I kind of think that what's been proven out from this switch to distributed is I think many innovative teachers are going to figure out that they may not need the parent institution to do what they do. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing that awkward liberation occur because it's going to mean that the fields can actually, they're not stuck in the departments as much. Um, that's my hope, at least. That's the idealist saying something. Professors are already coming up with so many innovative ways, I think, to teach their classrooms right now. So it really is sparking new thought there. And I like how you discuss, again, kind of bringing it back to how the technology is going to change our mode of education and ultimately how we interact as humans. And I think this is a great point to bring up how much of your work not only centers around art and technology, but also around the experience of being human, of living in a body, of how we live out human values and of the human experience broadly. How do you understand the way that you balance art, mathematics, and also this humanistic inquiry? I, I have been lucky to touch upon a lot of fields because I'm insecure. And this insecurity is what drives the desire to become better. And every time I've gotten good at something, I tend to throw it away because I'm afraid I'll become complacent. And it is extremely irrational. And people ask me, what's my secret? I don't know if it's a secret, it's a bad idea, but it means starting over again, not being good. And I don't know why I do it, but I do it and I know someday I will not be able to do it. I won't be able to come back, but each time I bet that I can come back and that's the only thing. And I'm lucky to have my mom still alive. Mom's great. It's like, you can do it, John. I said, really? Oh yeah. You know, she's saying this while she's watching Anderson Cooper on CNN and getting happy. <laughs> and this is, you know, she's just kind of like talking about the whatever. And she just watched her favorite Korean drama. She watches Turkish dramas. I'm like, mom, you don't, like, I love it. You know, I said, you don't understand Turkish. You know, she's like, but, in, and she'll just throw in a, oh, you can do it, John. So I guess the blessing of having had that in me, this irrational voice that says I might be able to do it, is why I, I've gone back and forth here and there. And the problem is that at some point, nobody will accept you, which is something that you have to get used to. And it's an uncomfortable feeling. It is not a recommended feeling. I'm jealous of people who don't have to feel that. I feel like, wow, that must feel really good. But I've already been made, broken, reconstituted so many times. Even if I tried to fit in, I don't think I would be allowed to fit in. So that's why. That's the, that's the background there. 
again, like bring this back to this idea of singular thinking in the educational setting. I think it is evident that singular thinking extends beyond education. And as you pointed out earlier, kind of the groups in careers, specifically with artists and technologists like yourself, oftentimes these fields leave out this humanistic inquiry. I don't know if you've found this to be true and what effects you've seen of this narrow perspective approach to careers in art and technology. First of all, I realize that capital is powerful, that if you have money, you have freedom. And I remember figuring this out in the art world, how most every famous contemporary artist you know is wealthy already. (laughs) Or they're like, you know, they're married into wealth too. And once you realize this, you're like, huh? Or you go down a list of all the Pritzker Prize winning architects. Find one that was not wealthy. (laughs) I mean... Who's going to let you build a building, right? Like, ah, oh, I've never done it before. Um, I have no money. I won't be able to like, you know, it's like you wouldn't trust that person. So startup world too. Like, why are there so few African-American tech entrepreneurs? It's because they can't sit, sleep on the sofa and eat ramen at their parents' house because multi-generational wealth to many of them was not something they could access. And so capital is an amazing thing. And the, you know, we talk about immigrants and like what they do for their children. They'll do everything for their children just to give them a chance. Like my parents gave everything to give me a chance, like depleting everything they had to make me happen. That's capital infusion. And it is, it's happening all the time, but everybody with capital doesn't get lucky and luck favors those who have access. So when I think about, you know, my fortune has been that my parents gave me everything they could so that I might be able to do something. And I was lucky. At the same time, I didn't know what I couldn't do, which was an advantage because I didn't know what an engineer was, designer was, an artist was. I knew about gardeners. I knew about restaurant owners. I knew about like the waiter profession or cargo. That's my world. And nobody gave me a a manual. And that's what I think is neat about the immigrant dream. If you're lucky to be that one out of a million, no one told you how, what you couldn't do. So a lot of my curiosity is, I wonder what I can do. And I feel obligated to try. And a lot of my later life has been about understanding capital and how powerful it is because I ignored it for most of my life. I was a priest, like a professor, but I saw all these other professors like doing pretty good. And I was like, what are they doing? (laughs) What are they doing? But I was just focused on the mission. And then now I'm, I'm not in that world. I really loved it because it taught me how to care for other people. Many people are surprised to work with me. It's like, wow, you really care about me? I said, yeah, that's what I did for so long. I cared for younger people. It wasn't about me. So I think that in the profession, a noble intellectual philanthropy is what I got to either like craft in my own mind because I didn't see a lot of it, quite frankly, but once in a while I could see it. There was this AI professor at MIT, passed away recently. His name is Patrick Henry Winston. I always say that when you die, your SEO goes to crap. Like no one cares about you once you die. It's like, whoa, who was that person? They were famous, right? Who were they? Um, He passed away and He's forgotten so quickly, but Patrick Henry Winston, if you look him up, he had these great talks, uh, how to give a lecture. He was famous for giving a how to give a lecture lecture. Anyways, he was the real deal. I remember like I was eating in a cafeteria at MIT in the building that he was in and 
There are all these chalkboards or something in the hallways. And because I, I learned AI from him in the 80s. I remember like this guy walking in like, who is he? Is he a grad student? Wait, is he the Patrick Henry Winston? Because already he was kind of famous. And we we're like, whoa, he looks so young, you know? So anyways, years later, I'm at MIT and then I'm a professor and I'm like, I see Professor Winston in the hallway on the chalkboard doing something. You know, this is outside. This is outside chalk, not inside the lecture hall. And I was like, what are you doing, Professor Winston? And he said, I'm practicing for lecture. I felt like such a loser. <laughs> I was like, what? You've been doing this for years and you're practicing? It was that moment I realized, ah, I, I, I could never, I, I can't reach this level. I appreciate this sort of idea about AI. And I think we can actually tie this back in a little bit more and sort of talk about one of the things that's really important to this podcast, uh, sort of as the heart of this podcast series is about what it means to be human in this digital age. Uh, I think your project of the human computer gets at some of the larger differences between humans and computers. I know it's been a short period of time since that project, but would you be able to, you know, explain that to the listeners a little bit? I was experimenting. Really? And I remember that TED Talk. I was experimenting a lot. I was trying to understand art and the relationship with technology. And I think we're all kind of wild, right? You can't say crazy, you say wild. The young people teach us this, which I'm so grateful for. I was a little wild. I understood computation. I understood computer science down to electrical engineering. And I thought, wow, I'd, this is a weird world that you can't explain to anybody. And then I read about the Bauhaus and like, oh, the Bauhaus had the same problem. I want to build, I want to show people what a circle is. So I'm going to draw a like 400 meter radius circle and we're all going to walk it together. I thought, oh, that's very experiential. So I thought, what if I cross the Bauhaus experiential with computer architecture? What could happen? And it was cool because... I suddenly could see the computer enacted as living people. And I was like, whoa, number one, they are moving super slow compared to how what actually happens inside the computer. Number two, the moment you give people access to the model, they've learned what they didn't have access to. They were education students and they were saying, ah, so this bus carries information in the computer. Why aren't there two buses? Which is how a, a more modern computer is built. They were asking all these questions that Maybe they didn't have access to asking or answering. So that stuck with me. I like the human computer project because it does sort of touch on that experiential aspect. But also, uh, I think it really clearly defines the roles of the computer and consciously prescribes them to humans. And uh, as technology is progressing, these roles can become a little bit more blurred. I say this specifically thinking of artificial intelligence, as we often can give computers roles that we once considered unique to humans, such as art and music. How do you think your human computer project would look different today, nearly 30 years after its inception? I don't know. I don't. It's funny when people see my old work. I made work in graphics in the 90s, and people always say to me, what's the big deal about that? Like, I could do that. And it's always like, yeah, it's really easy now to do whatever I did before. So I kind of discount everything I did before and don't imagine how I might bring it to the present. I'm kind of embarrassed about it. But I am happy that I still remember what I learned from it. And it's funny, like nowadays in industry, a lot of my utility is being able to explain complex things to people, which 
I don't think comes naturally to everyone. But I think when you are working with a lot of younger people, you're trying to accelerate how they think. And the only way you can do that is by explaining the phenomenon many ways until you find the way in. And in the process, you get smarter too, because you're now challenged to find the route into more people's minds. And then you inevitably find out that your idea was really stupid and the student's idea was better. And you're like, <laughs> I remember that. It was good. Artificial intelligence is funny. I find it so funny how a lot of the machine learning experiments are all about like removing shadows or like drawing a picture or whatever. Like, did you see it? It drew a picture that looks just like you or, or looks like a gerbil coming out of your head or, oh, when are we afraid of artists? <laughs> you know what I, mean? I find that so funny. Like, well, an artist could draw a picture of you that looks uncannily like you, but not like you. You know how that person doesn't exist? Easy to do. Just hire someone. They will make it look like someone you've never seen before. Not on purpose. So all the examples are these like scary, like deep fake. Like I'm going to make a, a fake version of you talk like, well, that's people do it all the time. That's like artists do that all the time. Like, why aren't you afraid of them? But going back to what we were discussing about propaganda and terrible things, humans manipulate other images of humans and scenarios to create terrible situations. Art is dangerous. Art can be dangerous. So if anything, the people's fears is, what happens if I can't believe what I see or hear anymore? That is interesting because if society fears artists, I wonder if that's what they're actually fearing. I think that's an extremely interesting view on, I guess, the fear of AI, but also the fear of artists. I, I think that's fascinating. It's a path I hadn't necessarily thought about before. We're not afraid of artists. We're afraid of art because art can change how someone feels. And as we know, it's pretty dangerous stuff. I think when you're coming from computer science, the tragedy is that you aren't usually given the cultural context to things. That's why when I was working on my How to Speak Machine book, which took me six years to write, and it's a terrible flop because nobody read it, but I enjoyed writing it because like, I don't know what that is. Like, what is it? And one thing I was able to look at more carefully was Dr. Joseph Weizenbaum and the work he did to work against chatbots before they were even built. And like, I had Dr. Weizenbaum as my recitation instructor when Patrick Henry Winston was my professor in AI. And I was like, He's just an old guy. Who cares about him, right? Professor, whatever. But everyone said, oh, he's famous. He's famous. He's famous. And like, it takes like 10 years of being stupid. It'd be 20 years of being stupid to realize he was the person who built Eliza, the chatbot, could have commercialized it. But he fled Nazi Germany as a youth. And he was afraid of what could happen when you put technology in the hands of evil people. So if you read everything about him in the 70s, he's this heretic who's not fitting in. He's not proper computer science. He's like ridiculed. Like, But he's like out there saying like, you don't understand how dangerous this stuff is. So it made me think about how unaware I was of everything from the fact that women were the first software engineers. Like no one taught me that in computer science. No one taught me that Rear Admiral Grace Hopper created the compiler. No one ever told me that. So I, I'm puzzled by the bias that's in engineering and also in art, in architecture. When I say puzzled, I mean, I find it unfortunate because it leads a light like uh, 
the filtering is too strong. It's like even the Bauhaus. Most people don't know the Bauhaus was half women, half men. But most people cannot recall a famous woman from the Bauhaus as easily as they can recall a man from the Bauhaus. It's an unfortunate thing that if you become aware of quicker in life, you can you can find so much more interesting things. Like even the diversity inclusion field is flawed because a DNI expert will start talking about blind spots. We all have our blind spots. We all have our blind spots, but some people who cannot see do not like hearing blind spot as meaning clueless. So it's so deeply entrenched in how we use language to understand, craft, but also inadvertently hurt. Technology definitely has that power, I guess, technology and art. And building off of the book you were just mentioning, How to Speak Machine, you explain how the internet is this life form that changes how we make products. And as you said, these changes could be good or bad. And you end up calling the potential bad the imbalance of technology. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by imbalance? And is there a way we can prevent this from happening? The nice thing about writing that is I forgot what I wrote, but it helped me think about what I know to now. And I'm really interested in the car industry because the car industry was the Silicon Valley. Like Detroit was Palo Alto, San Jose. It was the center of the universe. And the car is basically the robotics industry. And what we learned from the car industry is that like if only a few people have cars, only a few people will get into accidents. But as you consumerize the car, you make it more desirable and affordable, and everybody has a car, what happens? You get more accidents. So it was a technology deployed at scale that was physically dangerous. So I think of computing as a technology deployed at scale that's dangerous for the mind. And it's only dangerous for the mind because so many people use it. But if like, a, like in the... In the 70s and 80s, if you had a computer at your house, you'd hide it. That's embarrassing. But over time, it became more socially acceptable. And now we carry it in our pocket or purse. It's ubiquitous. Everybody has a car, basically. And so any technology deployed at scale has the ability to become dangerous. We forget things like the Nobel Peace Prize are created by the inventor of dynamite, who because of dynamite, it led to the ability to mine super effectively. But it also was used in war at a level that I'm sure the inventor didn't expect. Uh, ubiquitous technology has become dangerous. That's the wonderful thing about the science technology society people, or I think digital humanities might cover it, or even your center might cover it too. So it's an important piece of the conscience of, of technology that doesn't get you the interview at McKinsey, but it's valuable. You know, you were talking about the past technologies, and I think maybe it would be interesting to look into the future of technology and design. And I think it's safe to say we are at a unique and unprecedented time. Uh, we're currently at a turning point where technology has become and will continue to become a prominent tool in our daily lives. How do you see this current moment affecting the future of technology and design? Well, I'm passionate about engineering because engineering makes things happen at scale, especially in the technology age. And I think as more engineers can speak the language of business, speak the language of their customers, they have a leveraged impact on society. I'm excited about that. I think designers' impact on technology is different than it was 10 years ago when we didn't have Instagram and other consumer apps like that. The technology bar is much higher. You have to understand how machine learning works. You can't just draw pretty pictures to sell more apps. You have to go deeper. So I think pushing that is important today. I think that business is powerful. It gets things done. 
It's a language of execution. I've learned so much by leaving the Shire, <laughs> basically. I, I'm really happy that I did because I felt odd teaching people entering a world that I was not a part of. I remember in the year 2001, I was on this special MIT Jedi committee. It was like it meets every three years to decide that MIT's curricula is awesome, whatever <laughs> kind of thing. And there was two students on the committee, and we were all talking about advising freshmen. And there was a thing, because like when we, went, when we went to MIT, we had professors as our advisors. And there was this thing about like how you know, MIT was hiring all these professional academic advisors and career advisors. And we are the Jedi. We're all like, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. We need to make sure that we're the advisors. And then one of the students got up, stood up, and she looked at all of us and said, what do you mean you're going to help us with our future careers? You all don't have real jobs. And everyone's like, I think she's right. And in computing, it was she was correct. Because before 2001, you couldn't access great computing resources in any place. Places like MIT or Stanford or any like top university had the computers that industry didn't have. But by that year, the, the tables had turned and I could feel it. And so... I thought she was so spot on. It really catalyzed my desire to run at the pace of the world. It's a unique time that we're in right now. And the world is moving so fast and it's going to continue moving at that pace, I feel like. But to one of your most recent writings on Medium, there was this moment where you quoted an analogy of a ripe tomato, where you stated that it is better to be an unripe green tomato than to be a ripe red tomato. Because the only next step for the ripe red tomato is to go rotten. You explained that a crucial part of life is potential. And as we move forward from this moment in time, I think we face not only an uncertainty, but a great deal of potential. What potentials are you most excited for? Or rather, what are you most optimistic about in this moment? I got to tell you, I got to meet your professor. And I think that today is a good day for me. I have to get on a call to Beijing shortly. And I'm working with a, a team there and they are incredible engineers. And that inspires me in my work. I feel like the world isn't moving that fast in academia, which is a good thing. It's giving some people the privilege, the time to think, figure things out. I think this podcast experiment is one of them. It's, it's a seminal moment in your professor's career, I think, this, this experiment. And it'll probably lead to the next thing. The world's moving fast, but there's still opportunity to think deeply. And you can't think deeply if you're thinking in the hermetically sealed world of a field. And by reaching out, it's powerful. It's much easier for me. Over time, I realized how privileged I am as a man to be online, where people are not actively in different shapes and forms going after me because I am not, I'm a man versus a woman. That difference is so great. People just judge you so quickly. I, John, I thought maybe I could ask one last question. Like you, I don't practice my lectures, something that's probably clear to anybody who's ever taken a class with me, <laughs> to their chagrin, I'm sure. But I, I was thinking over the course of the conversation about the way in which you talk not only across audiences in terms of demographics, in terms of intellectual diversity, in terms of you know who's sitting in the chairs watching you. If you are to give a last lecture, unpracticed because you didn't know that this question was coming, what would you say in that last lecture to the audience of students, ethicists, technologists, humanists, uh, artists sitting and listening to you, what would you want them to know, to take away from, to understand, 
or to newly question after listening to you. When you said last lecture, I was thinking there was that CMU professor. He gave a lecture, Randy Pausch. I knew him. I knew him when he was in his prime. I knew how beloved he was. And then when I realized, oh my gosh, he died. I didn't know he was dying, first of all, and that happened. And I read what he said. I was so struck by him. And I remembered finding an article in Time magazine where he was in one of those like 10 questions, whatever, right? And never forget the interview. It's like one of those one-pager questions. He was asked like, what do you wish more universities understood about what is needed? He said, there needs to be more free time in every student's schedule to be able to explore across. And I remember being floored and thinking how right he was. So I would pass on Randy's last lecture as the thing to read because it says the things that I could never articulate as well as him. And it made me think, ah, I'm really glad I, I knew him. I didn't know him, but I can read him later. That's a cool thing about this stuff. You don't have to meet anyone anymore. You can watch them on YouTube. You know, as you were talking, there was something that really struck me that was a kind of clarifying moment for me. And I thought I'd bring it up because I think it's relevant to you. The word technology itself comes from the Greek word techne, which means art or craft. And I think too often we make these artificial divisions between what we consider to be art and craft and what we consider to be science. And we make those divisions, we fortify them in the context of a campus by putting one on one side of the campus, the other on the other side of the campus. And of course, we put the business people in the third wing. Really, the more I start to investigate this, understand that they're really interpolated, that these things are always coming into contact with one another in the real world. And I wanted to ask you a question about this in the context of something that we talked about before we started recording and also something that you brought up several times, which is the ways in which inequities get passed on over and over again. One of the complexities that I deal with is the complexity of trying to teach students what I think they should know in the context of art, which oftentimes doesn't, in your terms, amount to what we would define, I think, in our society as success. Success, I think, oftentimes is, is defined in terms of kind of capitalist means. And I wonder if you could maybe say a few words about what you think a humanities degree ought to look like. I go back and forth between wanting to teach ideas because they're interesting. They help people become better citizens. They provide a kind of civic background. They help people think more complexly. And on the other hand, acknowledging, as you put it, that students who, particularly students who come in with the idea that they're going to be paying their own tuition, that they don't have a kind of a parental backing at their behest, can't just take a humanities class because it's interesting and because the ideas are compelling, that there has to be a kind of endpoint that we would call, in your terms again, successful. Do you see a way in which the humanities should keep its kind of commitment to teaching interesting ideas? Or do you think that there needs to be, like there is in STEM, like there is in the technology kind of curriculum, an eye toward the building of a career? I wish I had an answer to that. The only thing I have is a reaction I remember when I was president of Rhode School of Design, I would always walk around campus, say hi to everybody, and sit on the stairs. I was like very accessible, probably too accessible, got in trouble for that in different ways. When it was move-in date, I heard that parents would come from all over and drive their cars to drop their son or daughter off. And I was like, I want to be there. So I showed up in my shorts and t-shirt, and I was part of the move-in crew. And... <laughs> this moving crew and sweating with everybody else and you're like 
I got so much flack for that. That's not presidential, is what I was told by different influential, important-ish people. But I do it every year because it's how I understood my customers. I can understand my the parents, why they were investing in their student in that way, and the students for why they came. And it was the most powerful thing I could do to learn quicker. So I would say that regardless if you're a humanist or a technologist or, or a businessist or whatever, the thing you can ideally learn is how powerful it is to relate to someone else. And I'm I'm passionate about the fact that you're doing this because you're engaging your students in talking to a stranger, which is hard to do. It's the fundamental quanta of relating to the world, the present day world. So I would argue that you could be a nuclear scientist or nuclear engineering or a botanist. Doing this thing is the humanist thing, I think. And I wish there were more people who could show others how to do that and to give that graceful way you've created an environment where I feel safe. I feel like I'm not going to be edited in a way where the internet comes after me, but I'm used to that. So it's okay if that does, it's unpleasant. But it's uh, this creating this thing is what, what helps people who may not have a chance to succeed more. Thank you again very much, John, for your time.